Welcome to the Told Me to Learn and Develop for Medical Educators podcast series from the Frank H. Netter, MD, School of Medicine. This podcast is for busy medical school faculty who want to expand their knowledge in teaching. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Coplett, and I will bring you interviews with experts in medical education, fellow faculty, and medical students to discuss the issues most relevant to today's medical educators. Today, we're talking about how to help medical students who are struggling academically, whether with one exam or more globally, with test-taking or keeping up with the huge amount of content and concepts they need to learn in medical school. Today, I would like to welcome Dr. Jeanette Gerasio, a practicing primary care internist in Colorado. While practicing at the University of Colorado, she developed a pioneering approach to improve the educational experience of internal medicine residents by creating individualized learning plans for struggling residents and medical students, serving as the Director of Remediation. She then went on to author Remediation of the Struggling Medical Learner, Editions 1 and 2, Her research explores remediation methods and outcomes. Last year, she ran four faculty development workshops at the QU Netter School of Medicine to help our course and clerkship directors and medical sciences faculty to better support our students who are facing academic challenges, including those who had to retake tests and or remediate certain portions of the curriculum. Jeanette, welcome. I am so happy that you could join us today so that we can share this learning with all medical school faculty. Thank you for the invitation. I look forward to talking with you. So I wanted to start out uh, with a little bit bigger question, which is just what are the most common problems that you see students struggling with that affect their performance in the pre-clerkship and clerkship parts of the curriculum? You know, the pre-clerkship years and the clerkship years test very different skills. And so we see very different problems arise, or at least we acknowledge different problems. And so in the pre-clerkship years, we often see challenges with medical knowledge or absorbing all this information that's coming at our learners because it's at a much higher volume than they're used to. And most of our students do fairly well, but there's about 15% that struggle with the volume either because they're slow readers or mostly because they're just trying to memorize all this information without putting it into some sort of structural context. And And because they've gotten away with memorizing for so long. So part of um, helping these learners is helping them understand how the material fits together. So they're not just trying to memorize and helping them learn how to prioritize the volume of material. So they know how to get through um, and concentrate on the appropriate, most uh, high yield information. And then the clerkship part of the rotation, we tend to see different problems arise. And they often are things like communication and interpersonal skills as well as some mental health issues. And so I bring these up because it's not that our learners didn't struggle with communication in the first two years, but it's often that that's not what we're measuring. And so that doesn't come up as a performance concern. But we start to see communication issues when learners have to explain what they're thinking and they have trouble articulating their thoughts. And this is becoming an increasing problem because we as a society are communicating less verbally as you might know, with our heads mm-hmm. stuck in our phones. Um, so it gets harder for our learners to speak on the fly and standing up in front of their uh, people who they perceive as being and that are higher in the hierarchy. And interpersonal skills, knowing how to manage larger teams and conflicts and, and differences of opinion. Um, and then the last challenge I mentioned was mental well-being. And certainly there's mental health and 
learning disability issues that come up the first two years, as we mentioned, slow learning speed and and challenges with um, studying, but they're a little bit different in the clerkship years. And some of that presents as anxiety and, in having to perform where other people are directly watching them or depression when they start comparing themselves to others or, or watching themselves relative to others. And so those are the typical common problems we see, um, but we also see problems with you know, physical exam skills and professionalism that may not have shown up the first couple of years. Every, sing- every single thing that you listed just made so much sense, and, and particularly the context that you put it in. And while I think most of our listeners probably teach more in the clerkship curriculum, I just want to bump back to the pre-clerkship just for a second and think there's probably people listening who thought, well, I tried to memorize in the first two years. That's how I did it, right? So so how do you, what is just one example of how you help a medical student today in the pre-clerkship curriculum shift from memorization to more uh, concept and construct building? Yeah. And so I'm just going to use obstructive lung disease as an example. And so we'll have students who memorize everything there is to memorize about asthma and everything there is to memorize about COPD and everything there is to memorize about alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, but they don't realize that they're all obstructive lung diseases. And then I often explain to them, well, if you have a patient in front of you who's wheezing, how are you going to differentiate between the three diseases? And so I often tell them to concentrate on the differences between the diseases once they start to understand the process. And so once they start uh, being able to relate the diseases to each other, they're able to understand the physiology better. Mm. And then it becomes less of having to memorize specific details and more about understanding how the process works and how everything fits together. So it's specifically pointing out the connections for them sometimes. Exactly. I know that as much as we're generalizing right now to talk about all of the most common issues that we see and to cover sort of the scope of typical challenges, I know that every learner really is unique. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could give us an example of a student that maybe you worked with recently, how you Mm -hmm. approached their issues and, you know, what was the outcome? And and if you have a clerkship example, even that would be great. Yeah, you know, I have two examples, if you don't mind. And there's one, they're very different. And I had my last student, for example, um, and just to sort of go with the same concepts we've been talking about, she studied a lot and her knowledge was really good. And she had studied everything disease-based. But then when I put her in front of a patient, it was really hard for her to know what questions to ask based on symptoms. And it was really hard for her to flip this her knowledge base, which was disease-based, to something that was more a symptom-oriented. And so she had the knowledge, but she would get so um, paralyzed with knowing what questions to ask and how to make diagnoses on the floors. And so what we would do is we would actually write out a diagram and an algorithm of how to approach patients with the different presentations that we saw in, in my clinic. And so if we saw a patient with shortness of breath, we would talk about you know what systems are related to shortness of breath. So cardiac, pulmonary, hematologic, like anemia and psychiatric and et cetera. And then we would go through the diseases related to each of those organ systems. And then we would go through the symptoms that cause this. 
And it was such a universal problem getting people from medical knowledge to clinical reasoning that Eva Agard and I wrote a step-by-step uh, process and paper that we studied and was published in the Journal of the Society of General Internal Medicine that explained how to get through and teach the clinical reasoning process step-by-step to help our learners sort of flip the way they read to the way they see patients. And so this was a student who I was able to, in three weeks, teach the clinical reasoning process to a place where she was comfortable and able to apply her knowledge to the patient sitting in front of her. That's great. And and in fact, I would imagine that if we focused some time on teaching those processes to all students and all residents, right, that we could probably take everybody from wherever they're at, you know, uh, and, and bring them up a bit. I think that's true. And, you know, I think some schools are doing a better job of teaching clinical reasoning, but for a long time, we expected people just to le- learn it on their own through the hidden curriculum. But our struggling learners don't traditionally learn from the hidden curriculum. They need someone to specifically spell out exactly what it is they need to be doing. Um, and that's exactly what I had done with this learner. And then she was able to do it. It wasn't a problem. It's just that nobody had sort of set the specific expectations and gone through the process step by step. And then once we did that, she was able to do it herself. She just needed a little hand-holding to get there. Yeah, and which is I wonderful. Be- yeah. And we actually are starting a, a new course. Um, our assistant dean for foundational sciences curriculum is starting a new course for year ones on how to learn. Um, and this is going to be part of it. So I'm excited about that. That's great. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Please go ahead. Well, I just want to give you the other example. And the other example was of a learner who had poor interpersonal skills and was very rude with the nursing staff. And one of the things that we had done was um, put this learner through recorded simulation where we put this learner through scenarios that had gotten them in trouble before and had the learner then watch the videos of their performance, give them, uh, observe their performance, provide feedback uh, or comments on their own performance. And then they receive feedback from the actors at the simulation center. And then then myself and a communications coach gave them alternative behaviors to substitute for their actions. And um, we saw dramatic improvements in their future behavior. Hmm. So for example, if somebody um, was using the incorrect language, we might say, instead of saying this, try saying this, or instead of turning your body this way, try turning your body this way. And um, I was just shocked at how much um, improvement we saw. And what I realized was that a lot of our struggling learners have been told that they're not doing well, but no one's ever distinctly pointed out what the problem was and given them alternatives to try. And I don't expect every suggestion that I make to work necessarily, but if what I suggest works for them, then they hold on to it. If it doesn't work, then I give them a different suggestion and I'm fine with that. But what they're looking for is alternative ways of behaving. And most of the time they just get you know, you're doing fine or you're not doing well, not how about try this instead. Mm-hmm. I'm so, that's a, a great example. And I, and I, and I love that you got to that granular piece because 
we had and, and we did a few podcasts on giving feedback. So this will connect to those. Um, but it's also connecting in my mind because I've been doing sessions on um, clinical assessment and feedback lately. And so one of the things that we talk about is how it's very important to describe um, behaviors that you observe in very low inference language so that learners know exactly what they're doing well and should continue and exactly what they need to change and how they might change it. And that's just such a great example. So Jeanette, one of the questions that comes up for faculty, so somebody who doesn't have a formal role in uh, in remediation or a formal leadership role in medical education, I'm a faculty member, I'm teaching in the clerkships, for example, and I see that one of my learners is struggling. And how do I know when to reach out and help um, myself, right? And just and try to and try to intervene myself. And how do I know when I need to refer a student for more expert help? I think as faculty members, we have a really good gestalt about who's doing well and who's struggling. Um, Sometimes as general faculty, we do have the skills needed to identify the problem and to help our learner. And so if you are helping the learner and you find out that you um, have the skills to remediate the learner and you feel like they are 100% remediated by the end of their time with you, then I think that's wonderful and kudos to you. So that's implying that everybody should do something and try to help. Mm-hmm. So if you can identify the problem and you want to help, go for it. Um, but I still think you should let somebody know, whether it's the clerkship director, you can say, I work with this learner on clinical reasoning in the beginning, and I really think they're doing a fine job at it now, but it was a concern initially. This way they can keep an eye on this learner, make sure it doesn't reoccur as a problem. Um, but if you feel like you know someone's not doing well, but you can't quite put your finger on it, then you definitely need to refer that student for more help. because. Diagnosing where a learning learner is struggling can be tricky at times um, because often our struggling learners have multiple deficits. And so you might not know if they're inefficient because their clinical reasoning is poor or are they appearing to be unprofessional because they have um, a problem at home. And so if you are struggling to um, diagnose the problem, so to speak, the educational problem, then I would definitely let other people know. So let's assume then that I, um, I want to try to help. Um, mm-hmm. And I say I want to start and, and see, see if I can help this student myself. So let's say I'm there attending um, an, an inpatient setting, third-year medical student. Um, what, are, what are the very first steps that I should take? And I realize that that may that might be different for different scenarios. So maybe you can even give us like a couple of different really common scenarios. And what would be the very first steps you would recommend? You know, I think it's universal. I think the first thing you need to do is identify examples. So what are the exact examples that demonstrate what this learner is struggling? So is it an example of a conversation with a nurse? Is, it, is the example a poorly written H&P? Is the example a um, behavior that wasn't necessarily something that was said, but that just was a nonverbal that seemed odd. Was it 
that you were concerned that the patient was tearful or not fully cognitively present on rounds? Like whatever, what were, what were the examples? And is there more than one? So was it one bad day or, or have you noticed several examples? And then take those examples and see if you can diagnose what the problem is. And so we're not their clinician. So this is an academic diagnosis. Is this a medical knowledge problem? Is this a clinical reasoning problem? Is this a communications problem? Is this a professionalism problem? You want to think about it, um, or is this sort of along the ECGME core competencies list? Is this a, and then, or is this a mental well-being problem? And so that's where I would start because if you make the wrong diagnosis, then you're going to be helping in the wrong way. So, for example. If you think someone has a clinical reasoning problem and they really have a, say they have a new baby at home and they're not sleeping and they're just distracted, fixing their clinical reasoning isn't going to help. And so you really have to make sure you have the right diagnosis. So that always comes first. And then next would come building a, um, a remediation program. And really they're based on um, giving the learner something to practice, giving them feedback, which we talked about a little bit earlier and you have had in other podcasts. And then um, with that feedback and making sure they know how to use it to change future behavior. That's great. That's really helpful. And then let's and then let's say um, I have a student who actually is having problems that are beyond my ability, and they engage. They end up meeting with an expert, and they are engaged in a formal remediation plan. What is my role then as their faculty member? So I'd like to think that the remediation team has alerted you and said, we just want to let you know that we're currently working with this learner on this skill set. And I would like to think that the remediation team would have given you some instruction. Mm-hmm. So for example, we are working with this learner on clinical reasoning. Um, once a week, once a day, can you please provide this learner with a patient with this type of case? Or can you sit down with this learner and outline their thought process on this case? Or this learner learns better if you um, draw on a board or in a quiet room as opposed to standing in front of a patient's bedside. Like they should give you some direction on how to best engage and teach this learner. That makes a lot of sense. And and I should let our faculty know, um, our QU Nutter faculty, that um, you know if if you're concerned about um, a student who you're working with in any setting that you should um, really very early on um, be speaking to the site director, the clerkship director, if it's in the pre-clerkship years, the course director, and that, it, you know, it's not g- getting the student in trouble. I think that's another mm-hmm. like common misconception rate and that people think it'll Great. it'll harm the student, it'll harm the student's grade. It's actually so they can get coaching. And we have um, a really great program in place. Um, every student who... Um, who is deemed as sort of needed ends up with an academic success team um, and gets coaching in whatever area they need, um, whether it's pre-clerkship or clerkship curriculum. So I've also just been encouraging people to to refer early mm-hmm. um, for the benefit of the student. Um, the last thing that even the student wants, right, is to find out at the very end of their time with somebody that um, that they weren't performing um, adequately, you know, and they could have done something about it sooner. 
And that's how our remediation program started. You know, we had a learner who had failed multiple clerkships before the grades came in and we realized that that had happened. And we thought by that point, it had really destroyed this learner's career because their transcript yeah. looked terrible. We could have helped them so much earlier. And the same thing happens if at the end of a clerkship, you learn the learner's failing. It's not that it's too late, but it, it does a lot of damage um, for trying to get residencies or delaying graduation. And that's then becomes a huge cost burden to the student if you could have fixed things earlier. Yeah. And, and not to mention, it's less frustrating for teachers and and fellow students and residents, if you can fix problems earlier. What are the, one thing we didn't talk about um, is, you know, what are some of the typical things that you see um, residents struggle with? You know, I see residents struggle a lot more with clinical reasoning and professionalism. And so, and, and same with faculty. And I think part of the reason is there's, there are less, um, safety nets when it comes to clinical reasoning as you get further along in your training. And so when you're a third year medical student, you're only expected to have some very baseline uh, superficial clinical reasoning skills. But then as you get further along in your training, the cases then get much more complex. Um, so that appears in residency, often not even until the second or third year or more as cases, again, get more complex. And then professionalism, because I think people start to get more exhausted and more burnt out. And if a third-year medical student disappears on a clerkship for an afternoon, they can easily go unnoticed. But if a third-year resident disappears for an afternoon, you're, it's a major sa patient safety issue. And so these are the things that we tend to pick up later. And then, then the other reasons we often don't pick up things like medical knowledge is by then, by the time you're a third year, say, resident or faculty member, you've already passed your licensing exams. You've passed um, your boards. And so you have the knowledge. So we tend to see mm -hmm. the other things pop up. Well, that makes an awful lot of sense, too. And it's interesting because I guess I wouldn't have, have thought about that, that, that that's why you're seeing issues pop up in second and third year residents because interns are really tasked with the, um, I don't know, the, the, how do I say it, the, the hands-on um, lower cognitive level tasks sometimes. And even if they can do the higher cognitive tasks, um, or if they're not, their residents fill in the gaps, yeah. right? So yeah, like, they're there to back them up. I don't know what to do with this patient who you know, is having a GI bleed and also having an MI, well, the residents can help them with those yeah. complicated overlapping algorithms. Yeah. So. And then and then there's always the issue, I suppose, we don't think about is that um, the, the, you know, people reading each other's notes, right, mm -hmm. and learning from the notes. So maybe they, if the resident wrote the note first and then the intern says, oh, yeah, I get it. You know, mm -hmm. I wonder if some of that happens too, that yeah. they don't, and they don't want to say to their resident, I'm not getting this. Mm -hmm. Sometimes um, faculty also worry about legal issues and documentation requirements for students who are really struggling academically. And I know, and, and, and to be clear, most of the students who are struggling, who we all work with, are really struggling with a particular issue, are not um, having more global issues or really more severe issues. But those who are, who are really struggling, what are the most important things for faculty to know in that regard? So from a legal standpoint, 
you don't need to document volumes of information. And I think that's the biggest misconception, but your documentation has to be complete. And so the, by complete, I mean, you have to document the time, the date that you identified something, who identified it, who the student is, and an example. And it really could be a paragraph. And so it might be um, on this date, in this ICU unit, I noticed a learner doing this behavior. And this is the learner's name. Um, and here's my name. So the I think often people feel like they need to have like 17 examples, or it needs to be a concrete example, like a test that has a subjective score. Um, but it does not need to be. And then for faculty who don't want to write down things on a evaluation, that's fine. Um, I would prefer you write an evaluation, but if you don't, then at least call and tell somebody so that the learner can get help. Um, and so at least call a program director and say, you know what, I have concerns about this learner. If you don't feel comfortable putting in the evaluation, then don't give this learner stellar remarks. Yes. Don't, don't identify them yeah. as being passing or superior or even adequate if they're not adequate. Right. Pick up the phone and at least communicate that there's a problem. Yeah. Because it's hard to remediate somebody or tell somebody there's a problem if they have a contradictory evaluation um, that says they're doing fine. Then they just assume like school is hard or residency is hard and they're struggling just like everybody else and that you are somehow being biased and unfair and singling them out when in fact everybody knows there's a, a real problem. Yeah. It's also really difficult for um, those at the medical school who are tasked with helping students mm -hmm. to identify when there's a pattern when yeah. people don't put it on an evaluation. Um, that can be tricky. Or at the, like you said, at the very least, talk to somebody um, who can then document it. And so documentation is, I think of that as beyond, it's beyond legal, right? Yeah. It serves the purpose of just also making sure that it's documented, written down so that we can see patterns and know how to help students better. Mm -hmm. And the other reason I, it, it's super helpful to be documenting things like that is, is just in giving feedback, Right, because that's the very specific example that will help the learner to understand what they did. And I want to add a few things to this piece too. Is you know, would you want this person to be your colleague, or treat your patients, or treat mm -hmm. your family? Um, and the other piece of this is we are a self-monitoring profession, and if we don't that's want right. to lose that status, we have to do the right things. Yeah. We've been having, and, and it's so interesting because I've been having, these are the, some of these conversations we've been having in these assessment feedback sessions that, um, that that's a, a pretty big responsibility that we mm -hmm. carry. We carry responsibility, not just for our learners, but for the public. Yeah. And, um, and that's exactly what I say too. I say, you have to think about, would you, could you imagine this person taking care of you or your family member? And if not, they're really the there, there is a responsibility for for us then to intervene in some way. Um, so, Jeanette, I just this has been really helpful 
for me. And one of the things that I just love that you do and why I really wanted to interview you for the podcast is maybe it's because of what you do and because you know how to break things down for learners, right? I think that's why you break down these processes of even the diagnosis, right? For us as faculty to help us understand it. And you do that so well and make it so clear. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm Lisa Coplett. Thanks for listening. And check out our next podcast coming out next month. I would like to thank the people who contributed to the show, Katie Lyons, our producer, and David DeRoche, our program director. For more information on other faculty development opportunities at Netter, email katie.lyons at qu.edu. For more information on all of Quinnipiac's podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at QU Podcasts. Mm-hmm.